0: Well, good morning. Good to see everybody. I can see everybody from up here. It's usually Ken being six foot three, but it's extra high when you're up on a stage. Okay, so we're continuing our studies in 1 Thessalonians. I know I preach just occasionally, so um, I forgive you if you don't remember the last message. I'll give you a quick recap, but... Uh, The reading for today is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12 and verse 13. Okay, the Bible reads, And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labour among you and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake, and be at peace among yourselves. I'll just pray again for the Lord's help. Heavenly Father, I love you and I do need your help now. I do pray that you'd help me to communicate the message that you've given me. I do pray that you'd just help me to share it clearly. I pray for your Holy Spirit's power uh, on me, but also on the listeners. Father, I do pray that the word of God would be heard and applied. In Jesus' name, amen. So last time we were in Thessalonians, we learnt that the Christians are called to comfort, to encourage, and edify one another. Said in the previous verse, verse eleven, wherefore comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also ye do. Now Paul showed that there should continue to be close and supportive relationships between the saints. In today's verses we see that there should be an equally close relationship between the saints, saints and their shepherd. And for this to occur, Paul says Christians should properly know the leaders in their local church. So for a bit of fun, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. Don't take it too seriously, but it's just to get your attention. I want you to consider how well you know your pastors and also other spiritual leaders in your life. I know you have, if you're a Christian children, you have Christian parents, your parents are your spiritual leaders. If you attend kids club, Your one-way leaders, your TOFs leaders, are spiritual leaders as well. But for the sake of this activity, I want you to think about how well you know your pastors. Pastor, you're excluded from this and pastor's family has an unfair advantage. So it's, it's for the rest of us. Some questions personally to consider in your own mind is you can think of Pastor Crockett as well, who's not here, is what's their middle name? What's their favourite football team? I know these are very spiritual questions. How do they have their coffee? Now some more spiritual ones. What's their favourite Bible verse? Who's their favourite Bible figure? Now I know that's very a superficial measure of how we might know someone. But it can be a little telling, you know, of how much time we've spent around them as well. Just a little bit. But you can relax if your knowledge of them in those areas is pretty limited. Before we look at how the Bible says we should know our church leaders, I want to look at this word, know. In the verse 12 of the reading that we just read, Paul used the word know. And in the New Testament, know is translated very differently, depending on what Greek word it comes from. There's different words for different concepts that are being taught. In verse 12, Paul writes know, which is the Greek word, I deny. I deny, or it comes from Ido. This word means to know, to understand, or be aware of something. That seems pretty logical, right? We think that's what know means. But it also has an added emphasis. The word know means to know something which comes from seeing something. Okay? Now, the Bible does say a lot about spiritual leadership and the roles of spiritual leaders and how they are to lead. Today is not about that because actually these verses are about us as the congregation and how we relate to our leaders. So I'm not really game to tell our leaders how to do their job. Um, And plus, this is what the scripture is teaching that we're covering today. But in fact, this word, no, is actually translated in other places as saw or see. So it's not just no, but sometimes it's just translated as saw or see or... Things like that. For example, let's look in John chapter 1, verse 33. Quick Greek lesson before we get into it. John 1, 33. Here we see the same Greek word translated twice, but using different English words. This is John the Baptist. He says, And I knew him not. That new is the word that we're talking about, that's the word no. And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptise with water, the same said unto me, upon whom thou shalt see, that's the other no word, thou shalt see, upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same is he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. So here John the Baptist recalls how God said that John would know who Christ was when he would see the Spirit descend upon Christ. And this actually made me think about learning styles. Learning styles, you may have, may have heard of this before, uh, depending on your professions, but it, it's basically that we learn differently. You know, some people learn by seeing things, by reading things, or by doing things. Um, well, in First Thessalonians 5.12, this word know tells us that Paul was requesting the Christians to not only know certain things about their Christian leaders, but to know by, by noticing, by seeing it, as though it was already happening. Because it is. Because as we go on in the, in the Scripture, we'll see that Paul endorses, he endorses this leadership that, that was taken up there. So now we're going to look at three specific points that they should notice about the ministry of their church leaders. The title of my message is Knowing Our Leaders. It's broken up into three points. My outline is to know their labour, to know their leadership and know their lessons. Okay, so verse 12 again says, And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labour among you. Now by the time Paul wrote this letter, some time had passed since he and Silas were separated from Thessalonica. We can go back and look at Acts 17. We're not going to do it for the sake of time, but prior to the Thessalonian church being the way it was when Paul wrote this letter, there were those two missionaries. There was Paul and Silas, and they were the leaders of that local gathering. However, we know that a violent persecution took place. They were driven out of town, and then that new church was left without church leadership. So when the missionaries could not return, Someone had to step up into this vacancy. And perhaps Timothy had met these people. They're not mentioned by name, but perhaps Timothy met them when he did that visit, where he did that missionary visit that's talked about in chapter 3. He may have met them or he may have appointed them. I'm not really sure. But it's evident that these leaders were spiritually qualified to perform such roles. This is because Paul endorses their leadership in verse 12 and 13. He's saying, know your leaders, (laughs) take notice of them and then respect them. He wouldn't say this if they were dodgy. You know, Paul, Paul spoke about false teachers, false prophets, and he said you know, those that cause divisions, and he, he, um, he pointed them out when they were there. However, these same verses show that something was lacking on the part of the Christians that made up the church. It seems these Christians didn't properly recognise the labour of their church leaders, and so this was a hindrance for the proper functioning of the church. Now we're going to look at this word labour. What does Paul mean by labour? In the Bible also it's translated differently. Sometimes labour just talks about a work occupation. Paul uses the word labour to describe the ministry of these church leaders. This word describes the fatigue and weariness that comes from doing hard work. For example, can have a look in John chapter 4? John chapter 4 verse 5. This same word labor is translated as wearied i think we know the story well when christ visited the woman at samaria john chapter 4 verse 5 then cometh he that is christ to a city of samaria which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that jacob gave to his son joseph now jacob's well was there jesus therefore being wearied or labored with his journey sat thus on the well and it was about the sixth hour here the word wearied describes Christ's fatigue in the ministry. It was obviously that he was physically fatigued from his journey. And it's logical that this was the case. He was fully God, but he was fully man. This is proof of it. But there are other aspects of the ministry that involve labour. In Colossians 1.29, for example, the same word labour is used. This time it describes the effort of labour required in ministering the word and teaching teaching doctrine to others. Colossians one i I'll just read these ones. Whom we preach, warning every man, and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus, whereunto I also labour, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. Now the last bit is, is excellent, because the preachers and the church leaders are empowered by Christ, or they should be. And so they labour through the strength of the Lord. But it is also a labour. That word labour is used there, and we can take it for granted. 1 Timothy 5.17 says, Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honour, especially they who labour in the word and doctrine. So just with these these few verses, we see that this word labour conveys the idea of working hard in the preaching and teaching ministry. And sometimes we just we can just turn up, for church, and it can look pretty easy. Like <laughs> It can look like maybe there wasn't much effort to go in, but we don't know how many hours. We don't know what's happened during the week. Our church leaders are still human. They still have the same things that we go through, um, but they have a different labour. This was something that Paul believed the Thessalonians needed to know better. And likewise, we can undervalue the, le- the labour of any leadership at time. You know, we do it as kids, sometimes we take it for, grant, for granted what our parents do and then as we get older and maybe we have children ourselves we're like, wow, how did you do it? <laughs> it's, it's, it's quite um, amazing. It's very easy for us to hold assumptions about the labour required of others. How often do you, are you in a job and your job gets difficult and you think, oh, if only I had this other person's job. Or maybe you say that to them and I've had some people say, oh, I wish I had your job. I'm like, okay. That's fine. Yeah, it's got challenges as well. Don't worry. <laughs> um, don't get me wrong. I love it, but each job has their challenges. But when this happens, when we make these assumptions, we can take their labour for granted. And the same thing can particularly happen with our pastors and our pastors' labour. Unless we're perhaps related to them, we may only see the end product. You know, the, the half an hour or, or whatever it is on Sunday. But the families, they probably see it. They see them labouring and studying and the phone ringing and texting. and They see it all. Obviously, we can't know everything about the pastor's labour. We can't know everything about... And a lot of it's not our business. But we need to find a balance where we can appreciate their labour. That's what Paul is getting at. If we can properly appreciate their labour, it changes how we relate to them we can appreciate some of their work challenges we can pray for them we can relate better with them we can collaborate with them in the ministry that's what the ministry is about it's not the pastor that's meant to be doing all the the work and in fact we'll look later at some scripture that shows shows that and if we appreciate that and we can still value them when they are human and they maybe they say something you know that might you know, might not be correct. You know, they, they make a human mistake. So knowing their labor can, can really help a lot with which keep, keeping us in, uh, I guess, in unity with them. We should aim to understand the labor of our pastors where we can. The other thing to note in this verse, verse 12, is where it says, they labor among you. This tells us that they were ministering among the flock. So they were not managers operating from a distance, you know, they weren't you know, unwilling to get their hands dirty. But they were present and working alongside the people on the front line of the Christian life. And I'm, I know many of you have had pastors come and help you move, help you with challenges, visit you at the hospital. And I should just say, I'm not getting paid by any of the pastors. I haven't been queued up to do this message. You know, there's no... Um, yeah, they're not even aware that I was doing this, so anyway... Um, this is just where we got to in the scripture. But they have done a lot for their flock. And this is what I've seen. It also made me think about those who are not able to regularly attend church or choose not to. Now, some people have a valid reason. I get that. You know, whether it's illness or, or, or great distance from a church. Uh, I, don't, I don't know what the reason is, but some people have valid reasons. But there are others who are satisfied with having a virtual pastor. (laughs) Or none. (laughs) Well, you know, they jump online and will watch all of these sermons from other pastors, you know, and watch all these fancy people across the world and they don't even know the pastor that's in their own town who God has appointed to pastor them. So, I don't get that. That's not the way a local church should function. That's not biblical. You know, there is a local church and that's what we saw with Paul and the Thessalonians. Paul was present before the persecution and these leaders were present. They laboured among you. Church attendance gives us many opportunities for worship, for training, for fellowship. But the other thing it does is it gives us an opportunity to know those who care for our souls, those that have been appointed for that ministry. Back in chapter 2, verse 9 of 1 Thessalonians, it mentions that the Thessalonians were eyewitnesses of the sacrifices and labours of Paul's ministry, and that he was doing this for their sake. Two verse nine says, For ye remember, brethren, our labor and travail, for laboring night and day, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you we preached unto you the gospel of God. Perhaps we need to ask ourselves, do we even notice or appreciate the labor of our pastors? Or do we come and just get spoon-fed, and then, okay. Yeah, it's, it's, it's easy to shake a pastor's hand. <laughs> it's easy to go, thank you, but it can become a tick-box thing and you don't really appreciate it. It's easy to say, oh, thanks, Mum, for dinner, but not actually appreciate how much effort's gone into it. It's about the heart. So having considered this need, we now move to the second aspect we are to know about their ministry. We are to know their leadership. It says, And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labour among you and are over you in the Lord. Paul also wanted the Christians to appreciate those who hold leadership in the local church. And this can be a challenge for us at times. Now, to better understand Paul's advice, we need to probably recall the context, the historical context of this church. Remember, by this time, the church had a new leadership, so some change had happened. Some people don't like change, even if it's good change. They just don't like it. You know, it doesn't feel right. When new leadership happens, we can stay stuck in our ways and believe this is the way things have always been, so this is the way things should always remain. Now, I have, you know, I have no belief that our pastors are going anywhere. I hope they're not. <laughs> so this can also apply to... You know, other leaders that might be stepping up, stepping up in one way, stepping up in Sunday school. You know, if, if we are a ministry director and there comes a time where, where um, you know, there, there might be another leader step up, something that can happen is that people just don't like new leadership and they make it very hard for them. Secondly, the church actually had a less experienced leadership. It did. Paul was an apostle. Silas was a collaborator with Paul. These were the missionaries that went around planning all these early New Testament churches. These new leaders were going to fill big shoes, right? It's, it's, there were big shoes to fill. And for this reason, it's possible that the Christians would undervalue their authority. Yeah, I've been taught by Apostle, the Apostle Paul. What have you got to offer? I've been taught by John MacArthur on the internet. What has my local pastor got to offer? Or other bigwigs, which some of them don't even agree with their doctrine. But we've got to be careful about that happening to us too. It's also possible that Timothy even noticed this cropping up when, he's, when he visited Thessalonica. It, it was possible that it be, he noticed there was an issue there. They weren't properly appreciating the leadership. And so maybe he reported it back to Paul. And Paul tried to nip this in the bud. And yet there is another factor. Not only was it a new leadership, a less experienced leadership, thirdly, it was a homegrown leadership. Now sometimes people don't respect the authority of those who step up to fill a gap when it comes from amongst our own. Yeah, you might have people that you remember as a child sitting on a chair and all of a sudden they're in a, a position of leadership in the church. And that can be tricky. Or maybe they're related to you. You know, They have another role and you're like, you're used to relating to them in one way, and then you have to relate relate to them in another way in church, and that can be hard. We struggle to see them in the new light. So it seems that these emerging leaders may have struggled to break the mould of their former roles. In fact, Christ had flawless leadership, didn't he? Christ had flawless leadership on earth. And What happened to his leadership? It was rejected, but it was rejected by his own people. One example is in Matthew thirteen fifty-four, if you want to have a look there. This is Christ's rejection during his last visit to Nazareth. Matthew thirteen fifty-four. And when he was coming to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue, insomuch that they were astonished and said, Whence hath this man this wisdom? and these mighty works is not this the carpenter's son and is not his mother called Mary and his brethren James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters are they not all with us whence then hath this man all these things and they were offended in him but jesus said unto them a prophet is not without honour save in his own country and in his own house and he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief why did they reject him? It wasn't that he wasn't qualified. It wasn't that he wasn't a good leader. This is the son of God. He knows how to lead. It was because of their unbelief. Jesus didn't meet the expectations of these unbelieving Jews. And likewise, when we undervalue God's appointed leadership, we may be saved. But if there is no good reason and we undervalue that good God's appointed leadership, we are lacking faith in God's decision. We are lacking faith that he has put the right person in that role and we take it upon ourselves that, that we think we know better. This will impact the church and we may not see God work in ways that he desires. Now we've just considered how the Thessalonian church had that, that new leadership, that less experienced leadership and that homegrown leadership. At this time, this is quite different from our church experience, right? Our leadership, our pastoral leadership has been around for quite some time. We've even seen the Lord raise up a homegrown leader through Pastor Crockett. But there are others also who have roles of spiritual leadership, and this is where it applies to kids as well. It applies across the lifespan. They can be your parents, your teachers, your ministry leaders, and obviously your pastors. So it can also apply to you. How are we to value then those who are in positions of spiritual leadership? Verse 12 says that they are over you in the Lord. This tells us we should know that their leadership is based in the Bible. While the New Thessalonian leaders would imitate the faith of those missionaries, they would still have their own personalities. They would still be unique. And so the church needed to be sure that they measured their Church leaders against biblical standards. You need to be careful because we all have our preferences. You know, we associate with people that we like. That's not a way to appoint someone to leadership. That's not a way to value someone's leadership. If that was the case, like, <laughs> yeah, what would happen? We, we'd all, there'd be so much disunity in the church. Imagine if that was the way we operated in, in you know, well, it does sadly operate in, in politics sometimes, but... um. um Yeah, in all areas of life. It should be based on personal preferences. And we should remember that the church leader must be God's choosing. Uh, Brother Jesse shared that verse last week about um, God's chosen leader in 1 Samuel 16, 7. But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him, for the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart." 1 Corinthians chapter 3 also warns that Christians who don't understand their Bible shouldn't judge a person's suitability for leadership. We know that those verses where it says, And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ, I fed you with milk and not with meat. For hitherto ye were not able to bear it, neither yet now are ye able, for ye are yet carnal. For whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? For while one saith, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are ye not carnal? So if someone doesn't know their Bible and you know, they think that they know who's best to be in spiritual leadership, they're, they're very mistaken. Because so the Bible is the standard. We must also not declare something to be biblical if there is no such standard above that which is written in our Bibles. Obviously, we know this can be a problem with legalism. That's all right. But it can also apply to biblical standards of leadership. And this, this is also some of the context that surrounded 1 Corinthians 4 6. And these things, brethren, I have in a figure transferred to myself and to Apollos for your sakes that ye might learn in us not to think of men above that which is written, that none of you be puffed up for one against another. We cannot start comparing, you know, comparing our leadership or comparing you know, current leadership with other leaders. The Bible lists the qualifications required of those people, of our pastors. Therefore, if they have the gift of leadership, the church should know it has a biblical basis and it should be respected for such. suppose there needs to be a balance to this, right? You know, the, the balance is that the leadership is bound by the Bible. Okay? It's, it's biblically based, but it's biblically bound. In our King James' Bible, some of the words that are used for, for leadership can be very strong and sound very oppressive, especially to unbelievers when they read it. They're going to be like, "Wow, that sounds oppressive to have a church leader over you in that way." For example, First Thessalonians 5:12 says... That they are over you. Hebrews 13:7 says, "Them which have the rule over you." That sounds quite domineering, right in our current English. I think it, I think it sounds a bit a bit top-heavy. But when we read the Bible, we read the New Testament examples of leadership. We read Christ's example of leadership. It does not accord in any way with a domineering leadership style. It's not laissez-faire. <laughs> but it's also not oppressive. Sure, our leaders must take serious stands on sin and call it for what it is. That's important. But the word here that Paul used, this word over, means to preside. And it speaks of leadership, not lording it over others. 1 Peter 5.2 also says, Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, But of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. We we should know Christians don't have an unconditional obedience to any man. We're not part of a cult. Praise God, we're not a part of a cult here. I don't feel it. I hope you don't. If there is, I think you're perceiving things incorrectly. It's not a cult. Christians have one Lord and are ultimately accountable to Him. But God has given us leaders. It's given us leaders in governments, given us leaders in family, and it's given us leaders in the church. They are under-shepherds. They are pastors, and they provide us spiritual leadership, guidance, and examples in our faith. Hebrews thirteen seven reads, Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow. Follow their faith, considering the end of their conversation. You don't have to drink coffee the same way. You don't have to follow the same football team. But we're called to follow their faith. And because our pastors continue to preach the word of God, I'm going to follow their faith and their leadership. So far we've seen two important things to know about our church leaders. Their labour or that it's hard and it can be easily undervalued. Their leadership is also over you in the Lord. If you're a Christian you're part of a local church, you're agreeing to leadership over you in the Lord now thirdly we are told to know their lessons that verse that we've been reading is verse 12 and we beseech you brethren to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you some Christians and people in general are content to have a leader as long as they don't lead (laughs) it's fine to be a leader just don't lead me don't teach me it's true they can be genuine Christians, they can attend church, they can listen to the preaching, but they have a problem with following, for some reason or another. They have a problem with following their appointed leaders. These people would probably, if you fall in this camp, you probably would rarely seek a pastoral counselling. You would not actively say it. You'd go, you know, I won't speak to my pastor, I don't trust them, or, or something along those lines. Perhaps they have never learnt to follow because they've never experienced good Christian leadership. Perhaps their early experience of being raised by Christian parents wasn't really that Christian at all. You know, you went to church on Sunday, but there was not much Christianity during the Monday to Friday. So perhaps they haven't learnt to follow Christian leadership and anyone talking about things of the Lord to them in a one-to-one way is too intimidating, too close. Sorry, too intimate there. Fine for you to speak to me from the pulpit, but sorry, no, that's too intimidating to talk one on one. Or perhaps they've been burnt by the failures of spiritual leaders, and this does happen. But it doesn't always happen. There's some people that have done bad things in, spiritual, in roles of spiritual leadership. Of course there is. Sometimes they get to the newspaper. But that doesn't mean that every spiritual leader is that way. We should not think that. Just like every man is not a bad man because of some men that have done the wrong thing and then lastly we can just have an unteachable spirit because of pride we live in a world where many people think they can become experts in just about anything you've got the internet i'll go and check out dr wikipedia google you know i can look up all these research articles um we're all very interested in self-directed learning and it's as if we fear being misled if someone else was to tell us the same thing. And so we solely depend on ourselves. You know, we've got all the Bible commentaries, you know, we've got all the preaching on the internet. So we don't really need, we don't really need our pastors, right? Well, that's wrong. Spiritually feeding ourselves is very important. We should not just be spoon-fed. But either extreme disregards God's design for a church, God's design for our pastors ephesians 4 tells us that god has gifted these ones so that they so that we can be taught that we can become spiritually mature to do the ministry and then edify one another and i think sometimes we undervalue the knowledge of our pastors All right? i think we trust our mechanics to fix our cars our doctors and our nurses with our bodies we trust our builders to build our houses We readily acknowledge their expertise and we seek their help. sometimes not the case with those in in church leadership. Likewise, 1 Thessalonians 5.12 says the church is to know these leaders who teach or admonish the local church. They have been gifted by God to do this role. The other people are skilled as well don't get me wrong but they have not been gifted by god to do their role now i'm not saying these people are perfect you know church leadership are perfect and infallible but they've been gifted by god and we need to remember that so to balance this out we need to know that they're not miracle workers god is a miracle worker but the pastor's job is to admonish this word admonish in verse 12 means to put in mind, and that's what they're going to do. They're going to put things in our minds on Sundays or on Wednesdays or wherever you, you know, if you're speaking to them at the coffee shop, they'll put things in our mind, not brainwashing, but they'll put a concept just as you teach. You put something in someone's mind. Our role is what we do with it. Whether we apply this lesson, whether we properly consider it or and obey it is, is our choice. The Bible can do so much it can enable man to be born again to eternal life it can help us to resist temptation to sin it can help us to grow spiritually and be sanctified in Christ's image yet for all this the Bible must be believed right that's it that's where the Jews the unbelieving Jews went wrong it said that they had the law they had everything that pointed to Christ but it was not mixed with faith Hebrews 4.2 and likewise Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 10 talks about when they received the word as the word of God as in truth and not that it was just man's word it actually changed people's lives so if you receive the teaching of our pastors you believe it and you place your trust in it it will affect great change and there will be blessings from it sadly there are countless examples of people who waste this opportunity this teaching from God's appointed leaders we know Israel rejected Samuel's warning against having kings. Now, they thought they were just refusing Samuel's teaching. 1 Samuel 8.10 says, And Samuel told all the words of the Lord under the people that asked of him a king. They were rejecting God's word. They weren't rejecting Samuel's word alone. What about Judas Iscariot? One of the 12 around Christ for so, so long. Judas thought he was just refusing the son of a carpenter that done some miracles, but he was rejecting the teaching of the Son of God. What about us? Well, Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 7, that when Christians, if you are a Christian, you've placed your faith in Christ. If you reject God's word, you're not rejecting man's teaching. You're rejecting God's teaching through the Holy Spirit For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. He therefore that despiseth, or rejecteth, despiseth not man, but God, who hath also given us his Holy Spirit. And when we meet God, we will all answer for how we made use of the lessons he provides us, whether we are an unbeliever or a believer. We're going to have to answer. We're not going to have any excuse. We're going to have opportunities to to grow, to heed warnings, and, and I pray that we, we do heed the, the warnings that we're taught and the blessings. But sadly, it's very easy to take people for granted. We know that's the case with any, anyone. You know, it's, it's, it's not until they're gone, really, sometimes. It's when people go, when they leave us, you're like, oh, wow, it's, that's when you probably appreciate them a bit more even those who care so much about us. This includes those pastors who watch for our souls. And so in this message, we looked at three things that Christians ought to know about their church leaders. We ought to know their labour, that it is hard at times. We ought to know their leadership is over you in the Lord. We ought to know their lesson is to put things in your mind, but it's up to you what you do with it. We're going to close on verse 13 because it really gives a logical response that we should have to knowing these facts about our pastors. It says, verse 13, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake and be at peace among yourselves. We're going to close in prayer and then we'll sing a song. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have not left us Without a shepherd you've given us the holy spirit to guide us and to comfort us father and you've also given us pastoral shepherds father you've given us those that you want to guide us and to keep us in the right direction for our own good even when it doesn't feel that way sometimes but we do thank you for it and we we pray that you might help us to be able to relate effectively to our pastors to respect them for their labour, for their leadership and their lessons. Father, I do pray that you might help us not to take them for granted, but to respect them and to love them for their ministry. Help us to, to appreciate them. In Jesus' name, amen.